and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. Last week we started looking at the life of John the Baptist. And we saw the angel Gabriel's visit to John's father-to-be, Zacharias, who was a Levite while he was doing his um, yearly duty in the temple. And that angel Gabriel, who was very busy in those days, he went to Zacharias and to Mary and to Joseph and Elizabeth, all these people. And he tells him that he's going to have this wonderful son, this wonderful son who will be a prophet. And he tells him the great things about John and what he will do. And because Zacharias initially questions that, doesn't really believe, and ask, well, how, how do I know this is really going to happen? Zacharias is told by Gabriel that he won't be able to speak until it happens. So every time he goes to open his mouth, he again remembers that, yes, this is really going to happen. And then after that announcement, Gabriel went to Mary, gave her the announcement that she'd be the mother of the Christ. And... Upon hearing that news, she goes to visit Elizabeth, who is now at that point in the sixth month of her pregnancy. And there's that wonderful meeting between Elizabeth and Mary, and Elizabeth brings forth that great prophecy to Mary. And Mary stays with her, and we're going to pick up the record in Luke chapter 1, verse 56. And, you know, one of the unique things about John, or the most unique thing about John the Baptist, was he had that spirit of God upon him from the time of him being in the womb, before he was even born. And Elizabeth tells Mary that as soon as she saw her, the babe leaped in her womb and for joy. And that could only happen because of him having that spirit. So in John 1, verse 56, it says, And Mary abode with her, with Elizabeth, about three months, and returned to her own house. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. So this is the birth of John the Baptist. She's been there. Mary had spent three months with her, and just shortly before the birth, Mary leaves. And right after that, Elizabeth goes into labor. Verse 58. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. On the eighth day after a man... boy child was born, they would circumcise him. That was part of the law. 
Not only was it the law that they would be circumcised, but that it would happen specifically on the eighth day. You know, the people doing it back then didn't know, but um, medical science has proven that that's the ideal time to actually do a circumcision, that all the you know, blood clotting and so forth is at its just best point in order to do that. God knew he made it to be, so that's why it was done on the eighth day. And that was a, a special time, and it was during that, that ceremony when the child was circumcised that they would name the child. Now, it was not unusual for the relatives to get involved. You know, here they are, and the, you know, the cousins and the family, and they're all saying, well, he should be named Zacharias after his father. And, you know, you probably wouldn't welcome that if, you know, you had a child and we all showed up and said, well, you should name him Michael after his father. Michael might like that, but, um, but that was not uncommon. And it was common. It was the practice that you would name a child after somebody in the family. Um, a lot of people still do that, but that was very common then that it would be, in fact, it wasn't just common, you always named a child after somebody, if not the father, somebody respected in the family. Verse 60, and his mother in answer said, not so, but he shall be called John. She said, nope, we're calling him John. And they said unto her, there is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. Well, that's just crazy. Nobody in your family is called John. Why would you do that? And they made signs to his father, verse 62, how he would have him called. They're not just taking Elizabeth's word for this. They decided it should be Zacharias, and she's just crazy to come up with some other name. So we're going we're gonna to get the father to straighten her out here. And he, verse 63, Zacharias, asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, his name is John. <laughs> and they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately. Zacharias now can speak, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them, and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying. So as soon as Zacharias can speak, he rejoices and he praises God. He praises God not just that he can speak, but praises God for the birth of this wonderful child knowing who this child is, knowing what Gabriel had told him. And now, beyond what Gabriel had told Zacharias about his son, God gives him revelation concerning John the, Baptist, John the Baptist, and he prophesies concerning what John's ministry is going to be and what John will do. And that begins then in verse 68. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. 
to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. He's prophesying concerning what's about to happen to Israel. That those things that the prophets had spoken of over the history of Israel, that God had had spoken by the mouth of his prophets, great prophets over time, men like Isaiah, that those days were upon them, that those days were about to be fulfilled when God would be redeeming his people, when God would be saving them. What an incredible prophecy. What great news to everybody there. This is news to everybody. This is what they've been waiting for. You know, it's not going to happen for us this way, but if we all of a sudden got revelation that Jesus Christ is about to return, everybody get ready, go on outside so you don't have to clear through the roof. You know, he's coming back. It's going to happen real soon now. That would be quite some news, wouldn't it? This is what they're hearing. This is what they're hearing. They're hearing that the days have come when the prophecy of God's redemption of man, his salvation, is about to happen. Verse 76. And thou, child, speaking to John, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is what John was going to be doing. John was going to be a prophet of the highest. And he was going to prepare people for the, the way of the Lord. Many times people speak about John the Baptist being the forerunner of Jesus Christ. That phrase, that term is not used in the Gospels concerning John or used anywhere about him. And if you want to use it, that's fine if you understand what it means and what it doesn't mean. And they sort of, I think, get it from this verse where it says he'll go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. John's ministry was to prepare God's people to receive the salvation that was about to happen. That's what his ministry was. And he immediately preceded Jesus Christ, but what John's ministry of a prophet was was not any different than many of the prophets of old that had come before him. Those prophets also were calling people back to God. Those prophets also were calling and telling people about what was going to happen when God sent his son. Really, the big difference here is just that John's right before these things are about to happen. His ministry is to prepare people because it's been a long time since there's been a prophet. 
It's been over 400 years. And John is calling to um, his ministry as a ministry of calling men to repent, to change, that they had strayed away from God, and that they had forgotten these promises that God had made about his redemption and about his salvation. And John's ministry was to be to prepare them for what was going to happen, to prepare their hearts to receive the coming Savior. Verse 80, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. So <clears throat> John, then he grows, and he, until he's ready to begin his public ministry, he's out there just literally in the desert, him and God. John has a very powerful and incredible ministry, and one that Jesus Christ spoke about, that we, we won't get to, to that part this evening, um, but we're going to move into some of the ministry or the beginning of John's ministry. But before we do, I kind of wanted to just recap for you the timing of some of these events we've already covered. We saw last week that you can tell from the chronological tables when you, when you re recognize that the priesthood, the Levites, that would serve in the temple were divided by 24 courses, and that the first course would begin their service of one week, beginning right before, the, they would begin on the weekly Sabbath right before the first of Tishri, the beginning of their year. And then you just go, you know, through the courses. And they each had two weeks, and they, you know, would repeat. Zacharias, being the eighth course, you get down to that when he would serve would have been the, what would correspond to our last week of May in 4 BC. <coughs> then, when Zacharias returns, it's early June 4 BC, and that's when Elizabeth gets pregnant. Early June 4 BC. Six months later, Mary gets pregnant. The announcement to her from Gabriel, and she becomes pregnant, and she goes and visits Elizabeth. And that would be, you know, that's not real tough, December to June, six months. Six months that she was pregnant, so six months later in December is when Mary was there with her. Three months later, Mary leaves, and John's born, so that would be March 3 B.C., and then... <clears throat> From March till, now Mary was three months pregnant at the time that she left, so six months later takes us up to September. Or if you want to go from the time of December when Mary received it, nine months later is September 3 B.C. So it's wonderful and it's just one of the many, many ways that you can lock in the exact time of Jesus Christ's birth. You can lock it in from astronomical events. You can lock it in from the records of corresponding historical events like when Caesar, when, when Augustus Caesar reigned, when Tiberius Caesar reigned, when you know, Cyrenius was governor. All these different events helped to establish it. Um, but you can lock it in on both ends. And 
There's a great book that I'd like to recommend and a lot of what I'll be sharing um, you'll find in much greater detail in this book called The Acceptable Year of the Lord, The Life and Earthly Ministry of Jesus Christ by Walter Cummins. Terrific book and it covers the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, in that book he, he really shows you how you can, again, lock in all these events through the entire ministry of Jesus Christ right up to his death and how it all fits together and just again and again corroborates that Jesus Christ was born September 11th, 3 B.C. Yeah, of all days, huh? Let's go now to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Tiberius Caesar is the Caesar that immediately followed Augustus Caesar. In fact, they have a two-year overlap. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and of the region of Trachonitis. Sounds like a disease and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came unto all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So at this time, and again it goes through and shows you all these different who's doing what, who's in power where, and a lot of this business of the Herods, I did a, a series of teachings a few couple of years, two, three years ago on the Herods. That, that's available on YouTube, and, and to tell the truth, you can find it in those in, you know, older teachings, go back a couple of years. But I go into all the detail of who's who with these Herods. It can get confusing because they're all called Herod, and you've got one Herod at the time of the birth, you've got another Herod here at the time that... Jesus Christ is, you know, coming, is, is told to stay in Egypt and, you know, to flee to Egypt. He's told to flee to Egypt, and then when he comes back, it's a different Herod that they're now concerned about, and that's why they go up into the region of Nazareth and so forth. But anyway, it can get complicated, but if you'd like to sort it all out, you can go and listen to those. At that time, it says that the word of the Lord came unto John, while he was in the wilderness. He's had the Spirit of God on him that whole time. But now God's telling him, it's time to, to get moving here. It's time to begin your ministry. It's time to go do what I want you to do. Verse 3, And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the books of the word of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his, straight, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is a prophecy he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. And this whole prophecy was concerning Jesus Christ 
and that now John is sharing that prophecy and in doing so, fulfilling part of that prophecy that one would say, prepare the way of the Lord, make the road straight. There's an Orientalism that, that's involved in what this prophecy is that when you know, makes it even greater for you. Whenever a city, a region, expected a very important visitor, they would go through all kinds of preparations for that visitor. And one of the things they would do is they'd, they'd repave the roads. They'd make the roads straight. They'd prepare everything around it for this coming. You know, it's like if, if you were going to have, you know, uh, you know, a couple of summers ago, I, I visited Ireland. They didn't do a lot for my visit. Um, <laughs> but they talked about... When I was in uh, Killarney, and they talked about all the preparations that were done when Queen Victoria came to visit. And she had come to visit, and they spent two years just preparing for her visit. Two solid years preparing for her visit. In the East, when somebody came, they would do all kinds of things to prepare for this, the arrival of this great one. So here, these words about prepare, make the road straight, prepare for you know, the arrival, this is for the greatest arrival. This is for the arrival of the one who is going to bring salvation. Let's go to verse 7. Luke 3, 7. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This seems like kind of a rough greeting, you know. They came down there, and he greets them by saying, You generation of vipers, who, told, who warned you? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So John's telling them, and the corresponding record in Matthew shows that amongst these people that came were the scribes and Pharisees. And, you know, it doesn't take us too long in reading the gospel record to recognize where these guys were coming from. Mm -hmm. You had amongst that crowd those that sincerely wanted to repent and those that just wanted to see what was going on. And that was certainly true when it came to the Pharisees and the scribes. And so when John tells, seems to be, you know, pretty tough with them, He's, he's already confronting them, confronting them about the attitudes that you would see prevalent with them throughout the gospel record. That they so thought they had it made because they were of Abraham. We be of our father Abraham. And here, John, before Jesus Christ even gets on the scene, tells them, don't tell me you're of your father Abraham because God can raise up out of these stones a better group of people than you. And... Whatever plant is not truly going to produce good fruit will just be cut down and thrown in the fire. 
And the people, verse 10, asked him, saying, what shall we do then? You know, what do we need to do? He answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. The publicans were the tax collectors. And he tells them, you know, only collect what you're really supposed to collect because a lot of these guys, what they would do is they'd charge these guys more, and then they'd pocket it. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Each one is given very specific information, direction, according to who they are and their status in life. Notice with this, What's, what John is doing. John's ministry is a ministry of calling men to repent. His baptism is a baptism of repentance. And to understand that fully, and to under, begin to understand what baptism is all about, you have to go back and understand that it is a, a symbolic cleansing. Baptism, which is the immersion in water, is a symbolic cleansing. There were many different things concerning purification that were part of the law, and there were other things concerning purification that would become added in with tradition, you know, the washing of hands and pots and pans and so on and so forth. All of this was done, though, to teach people that God was going to cleanse their sins. That purification, that cleansing, was a symbolic act. Nothing happened except the symbolism of the cleansing by the immersion in water. Yeah, John took people down to the river and he, he dunked them. He dunked them in the water. And he did that, but he didn't do it to start some new religious ritual. He did this to show that they needed to change, and now when they repented, when they made a change of heart, they would be cleansed, and it would symbolically cleanse them of their sins. Even with John's ministry, though, it wasn't just that one act that was done. He gave teaching. He gave instruction. Instruction of what things they needed to do to make changes, such as the instruction here, to give to those that need, and so on and so forth. John's ministry of water baptism was just a foreshadowing of a greater ministry that John will speak about concerning what Jesus Christ would do. We'll keep reading. And <clears throat> verse 15, And as the people were in expectation... And all mused in the hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. John answered, answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but, but one mightier than I cometh, the latches of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. 
John said that he wasn't the Christ. They're wondering. You know, it doesn't say they even asked, but they're wondering, you know, are you the Christ? Are you the, the promised one, the anointed, the, the Messiah? And he tells them, I'm not the Christ. I'm baptizing with water, but there's one coming who is the Christ. And he is going to baptize you with something much greater than water. He's going to baptize you with Holy Ghost and with fire. Verse 17 whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preach he unto the people. Now verses 19 and 20 are parenthetical. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias' brother Philip's wife and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Those are going to happen in the future. This is parenthetical uh, concerning how people, some did not receive John's words, most especially Herod. And we'll get to that. He talks about this baptism that's to come, and that this baptism of Holy Spirit and fire will be that which will end up separating the wheat from the chaff. And there's, again, a whole figure of speech of how the chaff, they would throw the wheat up in the air with the chaff, and the wind would blow off the chaff, and they'd have the good wheat, and they'd burn up the rest with fire. And this is all of what would be fulfilled ultimately with by, by what Jesus Christ was going to come and make available. We'll stop there. Me down, the word is on my mind.